Good morning. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 37. Choir rehearsal tonight at 5. Studies in Ezra at 6. Bring finger foods and we're low on pop. I saw a pop coming in the back door. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a good thing. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Andrea's number there again. New Acts and Facts and the Free Grace broadcaster are here. Acts and Facts. Um, the Bible best explains the Ice Age in bold letters. So you'll see the, the glacier there on the cover. Uh, TBC Family Night, November the 9th, 7 to 9, movie night. Mom's Night Out, you'll see that in the bulletin flyer there. Fellowship Hall, and uh, again, more details on the helps board. Next Sunday is our first Sunday, our communion service. No dinner and no evening service next week. Anything I've missed this morning, forgotten, omitted? Just for clarification, the movie title is Mom's Night Out. Oh, okay. <laughs> not just for moms. Thank you for that. Our scripture for meditation this morning is 1 Timothy 1, read 3 through 11.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Phil, would you ask the Lord's blessing? Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning, we come to you with gladness in our hearts, but also sadness about us. Recent tragedy in Pittsburgh with the, the murder of the Jewish synagogue, Lord, is heavy on our hearts. And Lord, we know that it could, but by your grace, be us. We praise you. morning. We please take your red Trinity hymnal and turn to number 66, 66 in the red hymnal, please.
Yes, she was last week. All right, we're going to have Naomi put her hand down. Someone else have a favorite hymn, not from Andrew. Yes, sir. tell it on the mountain oh. in the brown go tell it on the mountain i yeah, think sorry. let's see 138 yes, in the brown 138 in the brown because christmas is not the only time that we have to sing christmas song because it's always about christ correct morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, and we'll be reading 32 through 42.
Matthew 24, starting at verse 32. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twig twigs get tender and, it leaves, and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the, at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be grinding with a handmill, and one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Take your red hymnals again and turn to number 57, 57 in the Trinity red hymnal. 57.
Our scripture text is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Our last study in this series, Joyful Souls, considered the joy of redemption near. Anyone who has committed his or her life to Christ as Savior and Lord lives in anticipation of Jesus' return, a time when he will vindicate his own self from all the slander, mockery, and ridicule of the world, and when he will complete the redemption of his people. One of the best stress relievers is that Jesus has outlined for us signs of his coming so that we're not taken by surprise. We talked about the convulsions in the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, leaving their orbit, shaking erratically, crashing into our planet, turning dark. All idol gods that Egypt worshipped in Moses' day and which are still worshipped in our own day. God's showing us by all of that that he's God, not, not the orbits in the heavens. But there's also convulsions that will occur on the earth. The sea, we talked about it, roaring and tossing of the sea, a time when the sea refuses to be retained within creator's prescribed boundaries and instead rises out of its basin with huge tsunami waves that come on shore. In the last 67 years, the last 67 years, now that's not very long, there has been an increase of 8,268% of tsunamis hitting the shores of various continents. 8,268% increase in the past 67 years. That ought to be a wake-up call. What about the convulsions on the earth? Earthquakes, tornadoes, whirlwinds, storms. The book of Nahum tells us that God uses the things of the creative order to judge the earth. Talks about God sending his lightning where he wants it to go. Thunders in the heavens. We used to teach our kids when they were growing up that when you hear the thunder, that's God's voice talking. It wasn't to scare them. It was to comfort them. (laughs) That's God talking to our creation order. We close by looking at the reactions of men there are two reactions, terror-stricken, men faint in apprehension of what's coming upon the earth because they don't know. But among God's people is a second reaction. We, we look up with anticipation, knowing that with the coming of Christ, our redemption draws near. Now there's another aspect to consider about Jesus' return, which I'm sure is on the minds of many people. And I want to talk about it this morning, and that's the reality of God's righteous anger in his second coming. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, and your word. You speak not only in the creative uh, 
creation, but you speak to us in your word. You give us an actual written record of what you have declared is going to happen. And that is putting yourself on the line because men compare what you say with what actually occurs. And what we find is that whatever you say does occur, so you are true to your word, unlike uh, men who don't be, aren't able to control all the variables. It's not always lying on our part, but it's just the fact that we don't know and we can't control. But that is not the same with you. So we bless you for who you are, your omnipotence, your power. And we're just trying, by studying your word, to understand what is yet to come so that we might be prepared in heart. Bless our time together and honor your word and exalt Jesus, in whose name we pray, with thanksgiving. Amen. We're looking this morning at the subject of the reality of righteous anger, God's righteous anger. There's a lot of talk in our society, in our churches, about how God loves, God loves, God loves. God loves everybody. We hear that all the time. Well, it's almost like people think that the little phrase in the Bible, God is love, is the 100% don't go anywhere else definition of who God is. Well, let me tell you, there's another side to God, and that is his anger. And it is a righteous anger. Say, well, what, what do you mean by a righteous anger? Well... Unfortunately, this, time of, this type of anger is even possible among sinner men such as us, but we don't often exhibit this kind of anger. Mostly, we display sinful anger, in which we, uh, we use the expression, we lose our temper. That's the kind of anger displayed. It can result in cursing and raising our voice and throwing things and brawling in any number of other unrestrained behavioral traits which are full of selfish pride and sin. And for that reason, James says this, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Yeah, that's very true. James 1 verse 20. We forget or ignore God's exhortation through the Apostle Paul. In your anger, do not sin, says Paul. He goes on, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, Ephesians 4, verse 26. So here the emphasis is on a protracted anger that is not resolved, but instead is nursed and promoted and justified. And if you have that kind of anger, it'll lead to bitterness. God wants us to deal quickly with anything like that that destroys our relationship with one another. And believe me, that kind of anger will. But my point here is, in your anger, do not sin, which means... That there is an anger that is not sin. I've called it righteous anger. It's the kind of anger that God exhibits. 
Why do we call it a righteous anger? Because it is an anger that's justified. It is an anger because of sin. Not anger issuing from sin, no. But anger when wrong is substituted for right. Anger when there is no justice in the land. Anger when evil prevails and good is squelched. Anger when the profane is flaunted and the holy is suppressed. Anger when the helpless, the infirm, the weak are taken advantage of by the influential, the wealthy, the mighty, the strong. Cleansing of the temple by Jesus is a good example of righteous anger. Why is that? Well, because when he went in there, he saw all kinds of profanity going on and evil being done that besmirched the holy name of God and the very purpose for which the sanctuary existed. And I don't know about you, but I'm very angry about what happened the other day to the Jewish synagogue. Guy walks in there and shoots 11 people and wounds four others. You say, well, you're not a Jew. No. But I'm angry at the onslaught of that, the loss of life in that, the not being right of all of that, the anti-Semitic of all of that. Moses writes, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just, is he. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and 4. Do you get it? The, the kind of anger that we're talking about, it's, it's got to be just and right. Because God is just and right. And holy. Zechariah writes of Israel, they made their hearts as hard as flint, and they would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. Zechariah 7, verse 12. In the Exodus, God sent Moses, his prophet, to deliver the Israelites from Egypt where they had been in servitude for four centuries, 400 years. To deliver them, he brought great judgment on the Egyptians and did stupendous miracles, crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground, a cloud by day to protect them from the desert sun, a pillar of fire at night to provide them, heat and light, water from the rock to quench their thirst, manna from heaven daily for food, quail when they clamored for meat. Yet when they finally, finally arrived at the doorway of Canaan, they refused to cross over Jordan and take possession. Worse, they rebelled against Moses and tried to return to Egypt. Of all things. Well, God turned them around, all right. He turned them back into the desert until that whole generation died off. 
The writer of Hebrews describes it this way. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those whose sin, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that he would never, that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Hebrews 3, 16 and following. This was God's anger over a people that he had blessed. Think about this. With deliverance, with protection, with sustenance. But what about them? They were not thankful. Not thankful. When Abraham argued with God over the impending destruction of Sodom, he drew upon his knowledge of the character of God. And this is what he said. Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18, verse 25. Well, what's that all about? Well, he was pleading for righteous Lot, his nephew, who lived in Sodom without being party to the immorality. And God spared Lot, and he brought him out of the city before judgment was initiated. Take note, then, that the things that we have been learning about the second coming of Christ which result in terrible upheavals in the heavens and the seas and the earth, are all a reflection of God's righteous anger. Righteous anger. Judges 5, verse 4 and 5 says, O Lord, when you went out from Seir, Seir is a mountain in um, Edom, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. Judges 5, verse 4 and 5. Job asked the question, how can a mortal, a mortal be righteous before God? Good question. Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one thing out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it, overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the star. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Job 9, verse 2 through 8. 
All of these geological anomalies are as a result of God's righteous anger. The psalmist writes, The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. And all the people see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him. All you gods That's what he's saying, you you idols, you need to worship the true and right God. Psalm 97, verses 1 through 7. God is righteous in his anger. The prophet Habakkuk says he stood and he shook the earth. He looked and he made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapse. His ways are eternal. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and they writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth And in anger you threatened the nations and threshed them. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Habakkuk 3, verse 6 and following. So then, brethren, it is God's righteous anger that results in the catastrophes Jesus predicted for the end times. And let's just remember, before these things occur, God has been extremely patient with sinners. This is not rashness. This is not an uncontrollable anger. Well, how does all of this pan out? Well... God's righteous anger, believe it or not, is directed firstly, firstly, towards his people who know better. Or I should say it this way, who should know better. When King Jehoshaphat appointed judges in Judah, this is what he told the judges. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully... For with the Lord our God there is no injustice, nor partiality, nor bribery. Hmm. What do you think Jehoshaphat was saying? He was indicating the kind of uh, injustice that was already present in the judges in Israel. So when he appoints these new judges, he says the three things... No injustice, no partiality, no bribe. I don't want to see any of that in you judges. 
What we're looking for here is fairness. What we're looking for here is righteousness. Second Chronicles 19, verse 7. Now likely it's not escaped you in the scriptures we've read this morning that many of these scriptures told of God's righteous anger being poured out upon his own people, Israel. Now that's scary. The most horrendous of all being the total disenfranchisement if I say it that way, of the Egyptian generation as they were turned back into the wilderness where they died of natural causes in the ensuing 40 years. Even Moses was banned from the promised land. Do you remember that? God told him to, told him to speak to the rock, which would then supply Israel with water in the desert to satiate their thirst, but instead he struck it twice. With his rod. We read, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Numbers 20, verse 12. Reflecting on this in later years, when the new generation was just about to cross over the Canaan, into Canaan rather, Moses told them, here's his own words, the Lord was angry with me because of you. And he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. Deuteronomy 4 verse 21. So now what about this? We pretty well believe that Israel got what it deserved. Their whole journey through the desert from the Red Sea to the gateway of Canaan is summarized in God's indictment. Here's what God said of them. Not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promise on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Numbers 14, verse 22 and 23. The two exceptions being Caleb and Joshua. Okay, but what about Moses and Aaron? These had... These were two who had been faithful. They led the Israelites from bondage to freedom. They had prayed. They had interceded for them at those times when God would have wiped them off the face of the earth because of their idolatry or because of their complaining. Yet they're not permitted to enter the promised land. Psalm, the psalmist made a worship song out of it, saying, here, here's what he wrote. For they, speaking of the Israelites, they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. Psalm 106, verse 33. Rash words, hmm. It's a result of sinful anger. 
so indicative of us when we become frustrated and outraged. And God's evaluation reveals even a deeper problem. He said, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. Isn't that an interesting phrase? You did not trust me enough. It's a faith issue. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because God, because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, says the writer of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And what did we read as the reason why the Egyptian generation was not permitted to enter into the promised land? Let me read it for you again, Hebrews 3.19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And the psalmist words it this way. They did not trust me enough. God's judgment for sin and his people is not unusual. We're called upon to be a banner of trust. Trust that when the world looks at us, they, they're supposed to see a people that are trusting in God and living their lives by trusting in God. When Zechariah, the priest, prayed for a child for his barren wife, Elizabeth, God sent Gabriel to inform him that they would have a son together, even in their old age. But Zechariah questioned, Zechariah doubted that such would happen. So God said, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Luke 1 verse 20. Think about this. Zechariah, the preacher with no voice. That's not good. (laughs) Now contrast that to the same angel, Gabriel, announcing to Mary that she, a virgin, would nonetheless carry the Christ child. When she visited Elizabeth, who was Zachariah's wife, and in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the testimony of Mary by Elizabeth was this, Blessed is she who has believed... That what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Luke 1 verse 45. So here we have a teenage girl believing when a seasoned priest is skeptical.
when Ananias and his wife Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit by pretending to put all the money into the offering plate from the sale of their land, while in reality holding back a large sum for themselves. That was not a sin to hold back. The sin was they pretended to put in all of the proceeds of the sale when they did not. So God struck them both dead on the spot where they were, each one, one after the other. And they were carried out of the church and buried uh, alongside of each other, Acts 5. Malachi addressed God's people as thieves, saying, Never since the time of your forefathers you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, well, how do we rob you? Answer, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because... You are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi 3, verses 7 and following. So you see, we give God plenty of cause for judging us, even as his people. But with that said, there is a distinction between the discipline of God upon his people and his judgment upon the unbelieving. Peter put it this way. It's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Okay, but if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord? 1 Peter 4, verse 17. If God's people are spanked, if we're judged... And it's right and fair and just that God do that for us because of our sin. But what's going to happen with those that have no blood atonement covering their sin? No Jesus' sacrifice for their sin. What about the Lord's anger against those who have rejected the gospel? They heard it, but they rejected it. Well, we've talked about such natural catastrophes as earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanoes, disruptions in the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. But I have to say that in even hearing all of that, there is in the rebellious heart the notion that somehow, some way, that rebellious heart will escape such judgments. We think there just has to be some place on earth, some hidden safe haven 
that will permit the discerning to weather what is coming in the coming storm. That's the way people think. So when they hear statements from God's word, if they ever hear them, if you're witnessing that way, if, you're, if they ever read a Bible verse or whatever, they're always thinking, yeah, but that won't be me. That won't be me. Many years ago, I came across a TV show as I was flipping through the channels. And the TV show was called Preppers. What? Preppers? <laughs> well, I watched the program. The whole program had to do with how people can prepare for the economic collapse of our society and survive the chaos, the riots, the looting, the crime, the danger of people gone mad to survive when they have no money to purchase the necessities of life, food, fuel, clothing, and so on. And so what do they do? They hit the streets to rob, to steal, and even kill to get what they need. Well, there's some truth in that. If you ever watched one of William Devane's commercials on buying gold on the TV, he says, that's why I buy gold as often as I can. And then he asks the question, what's in your safe? Well, if that ever happened, then there were riots in the street and people were breaking down doors and coming and crashing through windows looking for food and housing and whatever. Would you really want to be William Devane? <laughs> Who has told the whole world that he has gold in a safe? There's a broader question. What happens when there's no food to buy and no food to steal? What happens when the human body is fighting all kinds of ailments and diseases what happens when demand exceeds supply? You see, God has control not only of the inanimate objects of creation, like asteroids, comets, stars, and so on, but also over living organisms and living pests that affect our food supply and our health. God's promise to the Exodus Israelites was this. If you pay attention to these laws, he's referring to his commandments, and you're careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, your new wine and oil, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks in the land, that he swore to your forefathers to give you. He will, you will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases that you knew in Egypt. 
but he will inflict them on those who hate you. Deuteronomy 7, verse 12 and following. God inflicting diseases? Did I read that right? <clears throat> if you're obedient, you'll be protected from all those <coughs> catastrophes. Well, what if you're not obedient? Consider his warning for disobedience. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, festering sores, the itch from which you cannot be cured. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, confusion of mind. Day after day you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you won't get to eat any of it. A people that you do not know will eat what your land and labor produces, and you will have nothing but cruel oppression all your days. The sight you see will drive you mad. The Lord will afflict your knees and legs with painful boils, that cannot be cured, spreading from the soles of your feet to the top of your head. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest very little. Because locusts will devour it. You'll plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. Swarms of locusts will take over all of your trees, all of the crops of your land. The alien who lived among you will rise above and higher and higher but you will sink lower and lower. Deuteronomy 28, verse 27 and following. Foreigners will come into your land and take over <clears throat> what you have. They won't ask for permission. They'll just come. Does that sound close to home with what we're seeing on our southern border? We read earlier from Habakkuk, plagues went before him, pestilence followed his steps. Habakkuk 3, verse 5. Plagues, pestilence. Keep that in mind. The two, let's start with the letter P. March 4th, 2013, Mac Peckman wrote an article for Times Magazine entitled, Locust Swarms Descend on Egypt Like the Biblical Plague. He writes, what might you do if a churning black cloud rising from the horizon turned out to be tens of millions of locusts headed straight for you? Folks in Giza, Egypt, home of the famous pyramids, are presently grappling with just such a plague, having to fend off upwards of 30 million locusts 
according to official estimates. The insects arrived this weekend, coincidentally just a few weeks before the Jewish Passover, which, by the way, is March 25th through uh, April 2nd. It sounds like this modern-day version of the locust plague is already taking its toll, attacking farms in the area, doing considerable damage to local agriculture. The upside, while it's not clear, there is one. Although locusts are considered edible in parts of the Middle East, so there's plenty of protein if you're adventurous. <laughs> Even better, the local meteorologists predict that strong winds are on the way, which may, may, blow the bugs out of the country altogether. But just think of that. Millions of locusts coming in. And eating your crops. On June 7th, 2012, 2012, millions of locusts did descend on California, Sacramento Valley, eating all of the vegetation on site. Usually 50 to 60 locusts per square yard. But at that time, they counted 5,000 per square yard. Ooh. You know that California and Florida are the two states in our country that feed our country. So God in his anger, all he has to do is send in the locusts. Add to this the news that the Center for for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC in America found that most cases of the stomach virus that are reported during the U.S. at the end of 2012 attributed to a new strain of neurovirus called G2.4 Sydney. The new strain has been making people sick in Japan, Canada, Western Europe, and other parts of the world. Doctors have called this strain the Ferrari of viruses. Ferrari is a very fast automobile. And they call it that because of the speed at which it spreads among people. The CDC warns that this type of neurovirus has been linked with increased rates of hospitalization and deaths during outbreaks. It is especially serious for the elderly and for young children. The CDC cautions that norovirus is very easily transmitted and can affect anyone. You can catch it from an infected person, contaminated food water, food or water, or by just touching contaminated surfaces. The norovirus can live almost any on any surface for up to 12 days. Pestilence sent by God. Wow. 2018, 2018, our year, eight children, eight children have already died in hospital settings because of this virus. It hasn't gone away. New Mexico. New Mexico health officials recently confirmed the first human case of bubonic plague. Previously known as the Black Death. Originally surfaced in the United States in 2011. 
Bubonic plagues tends to create panic in areas where it appears. That's understandable given that it's best known for having wiped out more than a third of the medieval population of Europe. Today, some one to 3,000 cases arise globally each year. Countries such as Australia and Europe are plague-free now, but regions in Africa, Asia, and the Americas have experienced epidemics of this recent disease. Bubonic pain. There's something worse. CDC, again, Center for Disease Control in our own country, put out this bulletin on the pneumonic plague. Not bubonic, pneumonic. It occurs with the Y pestis infects the lungs. This type of plague can spread from person to person through the air. Transmission can take place as someone breathes in the aerial solidized bacteria, which would happen in a bioterrorist attack. Pneumonic plague is also spread by breathing in the Y pestis suspended in respiratory droplets from a person or an animal that has pneumonic plague. Here's the kicker. If it's not treated rapidly within the first 24 hours of detection, pneumonic plague is 100% fatal. Wow. Do you hear the latest from the CDC? the Center for Disease Control in our country, that horde of people coming in from Mexico, those caravans, they say, contain hundreds of people with tuberculosis. They're coming in from Mexico. They're coming in from Guatemala and they're bringing their disease with them. All of this can be an indication of God's righteous anger. He's done it in the past. He can do it again. Well, is there any mitigation for judgment? Yes, if repentance before God's righteous anger is initiated. The Bible puts it this way. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways. And, <coughs> excuse me. And the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. To our God who will freely pardon. Isaiah 55 or 6 and 7. There's only hope before death and destruction hit. But if death and destruction comes first, the grave, says the psalmist, cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praises. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Isaiah 38, verse 18. A Babylon, I'm thinking here of the worldview that was built on the philosophy of Ahab and Jezebel. 
the scripture says. Flee from Babylon. Run for your lives. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. It's time for the Lord's vengeance. He will pay her what she deserves. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank of her wine. Therefore, they have now gone mad. Babylon will suddenly fall. It will be broken. Wail over her. Get balm, B-A-L-M, the medicine. Get balm for her pain. Perhaps she can be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she cannot be healed. I'm reading scripture. Let us leave her and each go on his own land. For her judgment reaches to the skies. It rises as high as the clouds. Jeremiah 51, verse 6 through 9. There comes a day, you see, from all of these texts. There comes a day when God says, I've had enough. You know? There's no healing. There's no change. There's no revision. There's no restoration. I've had enough. The only thing that remains is judgment. But God is merciful to his believing people when we sin. And that's why there's some hope for the believer. If we repent of our sins, God will heal, heal our land, and forgive us. That said, my final point is this. No unbeliever, no unbeliever survives God's righteous anger. Remember Jesus' prediction? Here, I'll read it for you again. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Luke 17, verse 26. That's a frightening phrase. Just as it was in the days of Noah. That's that's the way it's going to be when Jesus comes again. So let me ask some questions. Did any unbeliever survive the days of Noah? The Noahic flood? No, not one. Let me read it for you from Genesis 7. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air were all wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Genesis 7 verse 23. And it wasn't the whole earth that was with him in the ark. It was just his immediate family. The Bible puts it this way. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Hebrews 11, verse 7. Everyone else on the outside, he with his family safe on the inside. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say it was eight souls. Noah and his wife and his children and their wives. That's it. 
And while God set the rainbow in the sky as a sign to testify that he would never again destroy earth by flood, Peter writes of the terror that's coming in our day. What's the terror coming in our day? Let me read it for you. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear like a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. Hmm. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That's what fire does. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? He answers his own question. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt into heat. But in keeping with his promises, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Wow. Yeah. Amen. Second Peter 3, verse 10 and following. Oh, and by the way, even here, destruction is not the end. The destruction of the earth. The writer of Hebrews says, man is destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hebrews 9, verse 27 and 28. Well, judgment hasn't hit the earth yet, but it's coming. And so there's hope. Even as an unbeliever, there's hope that you will come to know Christ as Savior and Lord before that occurs. It's not going to be water this time. It's going to be fire. And fire has this ability to purge or cleanse from everything that's putrid, deadly, sore. We know that about fire. When there are plagues in certain countries, what do they do? They, They light the brush on fire. And they do a land burn. Why would they do that? Because it kills all the bugs, that's why. Think of all the damage that's been done by sinful men. It's a plague. It's corrupted all of mankind, all of society, every place in the world. So when Christ comes again, there will be this unquenchable fire. And the land will be purged and cleansed. God's people will be safe in the safe haven of the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, but not the unbelievers. And it doesn't make me happy to say that.
but it'll be a just judgment because they've had time and time and time again to repent of their sin and trust Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It tells us the truth, even the hard truths of your coming and your judgment. The Old Testament speaks about you as a consuming fire. Wow, consuming fire. We know that fire does consume. We know that it also purifies. We know that it eradicates. So if we're talking people here, if we're talking the wicked, consuming fire ends their life as we know it. Throws them into the next dimension of the eternal fire that never ceases to burn. And I pray that none here will ever end up there but will trust Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Sins that deserve hell's fire, but were paid for in full for those that put their faith in Christ. He went to hell for us. He died the death that belongs to us. He underwent the judgment of God the Father for us. May we trust him. May we love him. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, the red hymnal number 61. Number 61. Let's stand together and sing.
the words of that song were taken right from the Holy Scriptures, the Psalms of David. You're on the safest ground when if you're writing uh, gospel music to take the actual words of Scripture and put it to music. So I didn't like that song because it talks of gloomy, doomy things. Well, the Bible sometimes talks about gloomy, doomy things. Try to wake us up to the reality that everything with God is not just love and lollipops. Sometimes it's anger and wrath and judgment. And that's to wake us up to the reality that we need Christ and we need his forgiveness. And if we're forgiven in Christ, the wrath of God for our sins was poured out upon Jesus. God was not lenient about our sin. He let Jesus have it full, we would say double-barreled. He experienced the judgment of God for his people's sins. You need to be among his people. And if you're not, you can be by trusting him in faith. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for your goodness and greatness. Only you would devise a plan in which you yourself would take upon yourself our judgment, our condemnation. You didn't lift. You didn't lift the warning and the reality of judgment. You entered it and you laid it upon your own son as our substitute, our stand-in, if we'll have him, if we'll believe him, if we'll trust him. We don't have faith for that, but you can grant us that faith. I pray this morning that you will grant it to us. Why would you do that? For your glory, because you are glorified every time someone's saved, but also for our good. We pray these things. Amen. We are dismissed.